Canuck Central Wednesday. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw. We are a presentation of your local Grip Auto Entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. 24 hours later from hearing from the Canucks front office and hearing from Jim Rutherford here on Canucks Central yesterday. Uh, I don't know uh, what kind of Canucks fan you are if you missed it, but you should uh, go back and let, check it out on the podcast. And um, Sat, uh, it's been a day of uh, digesting, reacting. The take machine has been brought out across Sportsnet 650 and across Canucks Twitter after just the uh, reverberations of what Jim Rutherford had to say yesterday. Uh, plenty of contemplation. What did, what did this all mean? Should we have an existential crisis to some degree to figure <laughs> out what it means and where we're at with uh, this new management team? And, you know, it, it's it's great to have the honesty and the directness the way it was. I will say, I'm still surprised that they kind of negotiated through the media with Bruce Boudreaux. That's what I kept thinking about today. It's like, did they actually negotiate through the media with Boudreaux, or were they just being completely honest about everything? I'm sure they didn't say anything to the media. They haven't said to Boudreaux himself, but to be that direct about the situation, about what they've seen, what they want to see you know, for a full season, and the fact that they're not going to sign him to an extension and only... Uh, taking him up on that option. Did that come off as negotiating through the media? Or am I just overthinking things? It did. It sounded uh, as though that, you know, it's one thing to negotiate through the media and say, you know, he's got a contract that he agreed to and we'd like to bring him back on that contract. It would be one thing to say that. But it was also about going into some level of detail on the things they'd like to see more from Mm. with Bruce Boudreaux, right? Like it wasn't just the contract thing. It was the structure comments. And if he's coming back, we'd like to really work on some things with him and his staff. And so it can be a better process of things of how to make things work better. It was more than just the contract comment. It was all of the other comments, Mm -hmm from Jim Rutherford that really got me. Yeah, and there was a lot else, too. Once we kind of move away from the Boudreaux thing and start getting into uh, what he mentioned about the coaching, for instance, did he also tell us what type of coach he may be looking for, essentially? Like now, remove Boudreaux and say, hey, let's for argument's sake say Boudreaux takes another job or whatever. He mentioned a couple of things. The first one being, we'll see what happens this postseason. Yeah. And the other one was the type of coach... He wanted. Not necessarily has to be somebody with experience, but structure is certainly a big part of it. And he also kind of got into depth, into detail about how he wants his defense to play specifically. So when you take all those things together, I think he pretty much hinted at the type of coach they'd want if Boudreaux's not coming back. I get all that. And <laughs> I respect him Rutherford being convicted in his in his opinions. But I'm just not so sure a new coach or the different philosophy is going to bring better results out of this current group at least at mm-hmm. like I, there's only so much now this is going to sound harsh but it's like putting lipstick on a pig <laughs> okay there's some warts back there on the Canucks defense 
We know that they exist. We know that they're hard to overcome. And I just wonder if there is a situation that you bring in somebody new, they try that, and it still doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Unless there are some level of changes on the personnel at the on the back end. Yeah, and the personnel does also have to change. And I don't think there's any any doubt that there's going to have to be some roster turnover because even if you go through everything Boudreaux mentioned, as much as he mentioned, you know, that they they believe in the group to some extent and all these sort of things, but he really got into detail about okay, we rely on a goaltender a lot. We went 50% of our wins are because of our goaltender. So when we start getting into those sort of things and you talk about where this team's at, as much as you believe you can improve them and make them better, it also kind of hints at how many changes you're looking to make to improve the team, especially with some critical areas. Now, the back end's not going to go through an absolute massive makeover, but I do believe they're ter- certainly trying to tweak that. And it, you know, the one team that I've brought up all year and the team that Jim Rutherford actually brought up yesterday the L.A. Kings, uh, who will uh, play Game Two tonight against the Edmonton Oilers, mm-hmm. and even with Drew Doughty out of the lineup, you know they've been fine. They still control the play at a really high level. They control shot shares. They do all those things that the underlying numbers say are predictable, or at least are a predictor towards future results, right? And I don't know anybody that's listening to this show right now would be able to name me all six defensemen on the LA Kings right now. There isn't a... I don't think there's a hockey fan around the league, unless you are a diehard, that knows who plays defense for the LA Kings. Outside of Alex Edler. You know? They have a collection of players that don't like stand out to you on paper. It's not like Mikey Anderson was a huge draft pick, right? How did they develop him into a quality defenseman? Sean Dersey was not a high draft pick. Wasn't a huge prospect when he got traded for Jake Muzzin. Second round pick, right? Yeah. Dersey. But he's looked great in his rookie year. You know, yes, there was some talent and some draft pedigree, but they've developed and they've created a system for these players to really excel in. Even Olimata. Like, how many different stages has Olimata been at in his career? Jim Rutherford had Olimata and didn't like him all that much. Meanwhile, he's playing pretty well for the LA Kings. He, he's had a lot of success, and Drew Doughty's been injured, and Troy Stetcher's obviously in the fold there now, too, uh, serving in a depth role. And your point, I understand the point you're making. doesn't mean those players aren't good, though. Like, those players are still players that have brought something like Mikey Anderson's actually become a player it's not just you know somebody that you throw out there and say hey you know this is a guy that's you know out there playing he's become a guy that is handling top four minutes really really well and Tobias Bjornfoot was a first first round pick who has some pedigree and you know he's coming along well too but I think the structure they play within is certainly something that is a big part of how they're having success now when you have two centers like Kopitar and Deneau with how they play defensively, that also helps things in a big way and helps your transition game. And I think that's something to also keep in mind with what Rutherford was mentioning. When he said defensemen have to have options, who are we talking about? Yeah. The other defenseman? Nope. That's one player. It's forwards. 
So how are the forwards becoming available? N- now, well, and, it's full team support being connected, all 100%. five players on the ice. And it's, that comes from instruction as well, the coaches, how you want to play, and those sort of things, and how much of it is the quick ups, which make a lot of sense, because you're trying to quick transition. A lot of times that, however, is just quick up the ice in any way you can, and then hopefully you ab- you're able to win a 50-50 puck battle. It's not always on a tape-to-tape pass out of the zone. That's something the Canucks struggled with to some degree. Also because there weren't a ton of options available. Now that can be tweaked to some degree with coaching, but also having players that are smart defensively that understand how to be available. How many good defensive players do the Canucks have down the middle? One, Elias Pettersson. Yeah. Horvat isn't great defensively. He improved this season, but as the season went on, when he became more offensively successful, he wasn't as good defensively. And the trade-off is fine. He scored plenty. JT Miller, when he plays center, isn't as good defensively. He was really good defensively when he's playing the wing. You yeah. saw that his first year when playing with Patterson. He was really good. And, you know, he actually got a few Selkie votes because of how well he played defensively that season. But he's not nearly as good defensively when he's playing center. So down the middle, you don't have a ton of guys that are helping you out in that regard. So not only are we talking about defense to some degree having to improve, it's also structure and your forwards and how they find themselves and make themselves available. And your best defensive forward in many ways has to be your center. Uh, Tyler from the Island, what's your point? LA is a fringe playoff team. My point is, it's it's not necessarily about personnel. There's some talent there, but these guys have been put in a system that they can succeed in. And from an entire team standpoint, they've bought in to what Todd McClellan is selling and that's why they have success. The forward group helps out a lot in that sense. And they've also overcome a ton of injuries, right? Like Drew Doughty is not playing for them right now. If you were to forecast how L.A. has success, Drew Doughty is probably a big part of it for everybody. But that hasn't been the case. They've been able to find players that aren't brand name players and have them succeed in their system. And that's something that Jim Rutherford is absolutely going to have to do because they don't have the salary cap space to go out and get brand name players at that extra cost. That is why I think it's a bit of a template that Jim Rutherford directly referenced yesterday when on Canuck Central with us. Uh, A lot of reaction coming from our live listeners 650, 650 on the Dunbar Lumber text line. And this is from Mike in Kelowna. I like Rutherford's all business style. He's not going to be pressured to overpay and overcommit. Green should have never been given an extension. Roussel, Beagle, etc. should have never been paid that much. And for term, Rutherford will never make those types of decisions. Don't ever, don't overthink it, Sat. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what I mentioned about Boudreaux initially or negotiating through the media. That's the only thing I may have been overthinking. Like I mentioned, was that negotiating through the media or was it just being completely honest about the situation? And when you go into detail about negotiations, um, it's usually something that doesn't often happen. So that's what I kept thinking about, you know, and is it just being honest or are you actually negotiating through the media to some degree, which is something you don't often see? Then that's the only thing kind of wonder about. But as far as their acumen goes, well, it's going to be interesting to see if they they are successful in how they want to shape this team. Rutherford, Alvin with the new front office as well. And everything looks pretty 
good as far as the process. They look like they're calculated. They look like they, they have a plan in place and they're not going to bend from that plan because of short-sighted emotional decisions or getting caught up in the moment because of the run the team made late or JT Miller, for instance, having a 99-point season and not getting over-emotional about how much money you commit to a player like that who's going to be in his 30s, something that Rutherford himself talked about. It's very clear that this team is going to be very cold and calculating in the types of decisions they make for this team moving forward. And they may be the coldest, most calculating decision-making we've seen in this organization long-term. And I wonder how people will take to that. I personally love it. I love that type of front office thinking. We've seen it uh, being really successful in Major League Baseball. You see it in the NFL. You see it in the NBA as well. But MLB has been on the cutting edge of front offices and how to shape things for a very long time. Maybe too far, you can say, nowadays or whatever. But they're at a point where it's all about numbers and what makes sense for this team short-term or long-term. You don't deviate for just about anybody. There are very few people you deviate for. for. That's something you don't see in hockey very often. Is that what we might see here in Vancouver? Well, it does feel, um, and I think you can hear it in the way Jim and Patrick speak, that, and whether or not this has a huge impact, but the analytics department seems to be having more of a role uh, with the Vancouver Canucks than maybe they did previously. There is a lot to like about that. You do have to be in a flat cap salary world, flat salary cap world, you have to be pretty cold and calculated. You don't have a situation here that has been successful and you're trying to keep everything on the rails because you want to keep that success going you've overspent and overcommitted and you're still not good enough. So there has to be a different way of thinking. There has to be a change in process for this new front office from what was being done previously. There are going to be unpopular decisions. I wonder how the, like, time will tell. That's the biggest thing here. We can love it right now in the moment, but they still haven't made any significant moves. They haven't made any significant decisions. They've, from a roster perspective, as of yet, it will come down to, okay, let's say Boudreaux leaves. Let's say you do trade Miller. October comes around, and the team gets off to another slow start. Then all of a sudden... Joe and Maple Ridge is calling Sportsnet 650 and being like, well, what the heck did they get rid of Boudreaux for? These guys are bums. Bums, I tell you. They wouldn't be wrong <laughs> if, if, if all of a sudden the team doesn't have success. I mean, that's a – I love that they're convicted in their yeah. process. Like, that's what you want from a front office. But you have to make sure those decisions – turn out well and the big one is Boudreaux man like that's a big call for a guy who clearly had an impact on this roster on the results of the team mm-hmm. like the fan base that's like an added bonus that's a cherry on top that the people in Vancouver love Bruce Boudreaux and what he's selling but everything about Boudreaux worked every player on your roster Maybe outside of Nils Hoaglander had a better season under him. 
The results really turned around, and I know it wasn't perfect, but it's hard to – that's a big decision to make and a big call to make in your first offseason. Well, it also kind of signifies that there really is a new sheriff in town and things are going to be done differently here. It doesn't really matter what happened. We weren't here when you were hired. We weren't here when this team was put together. We're trying to figure out what's going on. We're not going to get too caught up in all this sort of stuff. And when you set the bar at that level with your head coaches have this much success, it'll be interesting to see how it trickles down to every other decision you make. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, all that matters is how you make your team better next season. It doesn't matter who you bring back. And this is something that um, you heard from Mark Shapiro, Blue Jays president, too. And he kind of mentioned when, when he was asked about guys like Robbie Ray and Marcus Simeon, who are going to be free agents, and he wouldn't commit to signing those players specifically. And he said, it's not about bringing the same guys back. It's all about making your team better next season. So if it's with those guys, great. If not, we still have to find a way to get better. That's what we're trying to do. Even with those guys or not, we're trying to get better. So if you're trying to get better then ultimately it comes down to what you get back in return and what you think you can turn that into. So A, it comes down to your coach and what you think the shortcomings were and how you feel you can fill that with another ideal type of coach with your vision of how the team should play. And the second one comes down to decisions on every key player. Quinn Hughes, Demko, you need to worry about that for four or five years. But it'll be fascinating to see what happens with a guy like Elias Pettersson in two years when his contract's up. It'll see exactly now with Miller. We'll see now with Bo Horvat. And yeah. if, if the price gets to a point where they don't think it makes sense, they'll make the deal. At least that's what it seems like. That's a signal they're making right now, at least with Boudreaux initially, and we'll see how they handle the JT Miller situation. But this could be a different world in that regard. Because if you don't feel comfortable with the number, you're not going to get caught up in signing that player. And if they're going to operate in that way, which is you see a lot of NFL teams do it. I mean, you saw any NFL, like, how many receivers are getting traded? Every single great receiver in the NFL is getting traded now. Yeah. Because the numbers are insane how much they get paid. And the second part is there's so many good prospects coming up in the receiving cores that they feel comfortable going after new guys every year to fill that gap and save that type of money. So it comes down to how you make your team better, and that's all that matters. And is that what we're seeing here? The perfect example is the Tennessee Titans uh, moving A.J. Brown, who, look, I don't love the move for the Titans personally, um, but this is the thought process that we're kind of thinking of. Uh, they move on from A.J. Brown because he's in need of a new contract. He goes to Philadelphia, gets uh, $100 million over four years. And what do the Titans do? They get the 18th overall pick and select a new receiver, <laughs> you know, who's going to be on a rookie contract that they feel pretty good about, and they're going to try and work with that guy. Um, is Traylon Burks um, anywhere close to A.J. Brown? Uh, I, I don't personally think so, but... Because I think A.J. Brown is a superstar. I do really like Traylon Burks oh, a lot. There's big, Sat. big Traylon Burks I saw fan. Sat raise a Spocky and eyebrow, and he's <laughs> like, man, what's Reach on about here? I don't know. No, I mean, A.J. Brown's really good, but I do. I mean, if Traylon Burks had a better combine, I would be clamoring for him to have been a, to have been a top 10 pick in this year's draft. But I digress on the NFL draft. Talk. The point still stands, <laughs> right? You take that guy and fill him with a guy you've just drafted. In Major League Baseball, you'll see relievers get expensive and they go to the free agent market, get paid somewhere else, and a lot mm-hmm. of teams will just go find two, three, or four arms that over the course of the offseason that all cost like a couple million bucks, and they hope one of them hits, and that, that's how they operate, right? This is the way of the world. You're always thinking and Businesses do this too, and it's really crept into the sports world in the salary cap era here in North America. 
you know, you're always trying to get younger and cheaper. <laughs> That's essentially how sports teams are operating now. A hundred percent. And the other part of it too is real, the way you view your team asset wise. And I've, I've been saying for a long time that come this off season, they're going to be making decisions. There'll be trades and they're going to be a team that's going to be aggressive. and They're not going to be afraid of making moves, but it doesn't mean they're going to be reckless and make moves for the sake of making moves. And Rutherford essentially said, we are going to be looking to make trades, but also trying to improve the team. So this yeah. goes back to what I've been saying for a long time around guys like Myers and even Tanner Pearson. It's not just about trading those guys. You can trade those guys. It's about when I move these guys out, what am I getting back in return? And you also know that in one year, Myers has more value when he hits the final year of his contract. Tanner Pearson, when he gets closer to the final year of his contract, he also has more value as a UFA, potentially. So when you look at your players and you understand they become more valuable at certain times, well, you have to you have to really have an idea of what you're replacing them with to forego that greater return for the immediate. Yeah. And that also goes to what they've said about making long-term decisions. Yes, trading Myers today to be better next season could be the best short-term decision. But maybe it's not the best long-term decision. Right. Because you might get better return and also you might be in a better position to make make a favorable deal in a year's time, for instance. So if you're not if you're foregoing that possibility in a year, what is your incentive to make that move today? And I think that kind of balance is going to be really dictating when and what types of moves they make. My final point on this, and after you mentioned uh, you know, the, the other major sports leagues and how you know, they've kind of changed their mindset on how to go about doing things, and the NHL has been the last to really come along, and it's starting to, but hockey is a different game, and I know people are going to bring that up on the text line. But I wonder if... That line that Boudreaux or that Rutherford mentioned, you know, there's things we want, we would want to work on with him and collectively be better as a staff. They've beefed up the analytics department within the Canucks. I'm not saying that they are going to influence coaching decisions, but from like a roster standpoint and who's playing or what, but are there trends around the league that? you want to highlight and you want to implement into your gameplay style. You know, you see it in baseball with the shifts. Uh, you see it in basketball. I mean, the easiest one for everybody to understand who's watched basketball over time is every team is taking more three-pointers than they used to. Um, in the NFL, less teams are running on first down. There's more passing on first down because they've realized – it makes it a lot easier to get the yeah. next first down if we don't run on first down. So how are they integrating the entire Canucks staff to help the way this team plays on the ice and maximize certain things? You know, we know little things like, hey, we want the face-off draw here and stuff like that. But how do they implement patterns into their play that are more likely to result in success? And that is a question we don't have an answer to because you have to speak to the individuals and yeah. really get a sense of that sort of thing. But you have to wonder if that plays a part into what they envision as an ideal head coach in the future. Because when I look at teams that have success in the NHL, real success in the NHL, they don't play the way Vancouver plays. They play different. Yeah. Watch the way, well, I mean, Tampa right now against <laughs> Toronto, maybe not the best, but you watch the Capitals, have they been playing? 
Yeah. You watch how... Their neutral zone trap is insane. It's insane with how they play that, but also in the offensive zone, how many east-west passes happen. I mean, the Canucks have a hard time completing those on two-on-ones, let alone doing that when you're either set up or you're trying to get things going. And when they're at their best, they do it. And we had that discussion with Brock Besser uh, post-game towards the end of the season when they were really going and they got hot and they were making a lot of those short passes to generate speed. And they looked a lot more like those teams that had success, but they had a hard time doing that consistently. And the teams that are at their best are always playing that way. That, to some degree, is is what the, the coach tells you to do, but also how the players come together and are able to have success. But Vancouver has to evolve as a team, not only to get better as a team, but overall with how they approach things. It's hard to be critical of Boudreaux and say, well, they don't play like top 10 contenders because their roster obviously does have some deficiencies and he got the most out of it. He did what he could with what he had. And that's the mark of a good head coach. He's not trying to play a style they're not capable of playing. He's trying to get them to do what they could at their best to be successful. And they did. You give them credit for it. But long-term, big picture-wise, you wonder, is that what they want to be? And what type of coach do they believe can get them there? It is Canuck Central coming up. Kevin Woodley is going to join us here on Sportsnet 650. Canuck Central is a presentation of your local Grip Auto Entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Uh, Kevin Woodley is going to join us in just a little bit. A uh, lot of goalie talk coming up. And uh, as, as we know, there's always uh, questions coming in for Woodley on the Dunbar lumber text line but uh, one thing we didn't really get to yesterday it's uh, more on the fringes of what was notable from what Jim Rutherford said sat but Canucks are doing a bunch of renovations over at Rogers Arena upgrading uh, what really nobody should care about the media room except for the media guys like us yes media guys and gals like us um the Canucks dressing room, that's uh, kind of a big thing. And really working hard on a uh, practice facility for the Canucks organization. Yeah, they absolutely are. Something that Rutherford himself mentioned and said that they're hoping to at least get some stuff uh, put together relatively quickly as far as a plan. So we'll see what happens. They've got a short list of three sites, he said. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the site does end up ultimately be in Vancouver proper. And we'll see where in Vancouver, if it's actually downtown or not, or, you know, somewhere else. But I wouldn't be surprised if their practice facility is Vancouver and not having to be too far away. Because I think that, I think proximity does matter. I think the players would like that. Now, players are spread out, but it's not like a lot of guys live out in Coquitlam and Port Moody and stuff like that. I mean, it's Vancouver, downtown, North Shore, Uh, you know, stuff like that. Maybe Kitts and, you know, that area. So I think if they could get Vancouver, that would be the ideal situation. Uh, Yale Town, we know there's a lot of Canucks over there. Olympic Village. Yes. Uh, Point Grey uh, for some, especially the management. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, but uh, <laughs> kind of spread out a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially some management uh, that that have been very affluent because yes. they were very good players yes. that are newly acquired in the front office. Yeah. You know, you'd say those guys are in, in some of the very nice affluent areas out west. I mean, they'd still probably just cycle around anyways. Pretty so. much, more or less. 
But yeah, so I wouldn't be surprised if once they do figure out the practice facility that we do, do see it be in Vancouver. Uh, let's bring in our next guest, Ingle Magazine and NHL.com. It is Kevin Woodley. Uh, thanks for this, Woodley. We were just touching on uh, the Canucks upgrading facilities and getting closer to a site for a future practice facility. Wasn't really the biggest thing that came out of Rutherford's comments yesterday, but certainly not a small thing. No, I'm guessing for you and me, Reach, that'd be like when they pass on a two-on-one rather than shoot, right? We've had this, conver- we've had this conversation before, right? It feels like we've we've talked about it many times, uh, you know, and I've shared this story before, but for those who haven't heard it, like it's like seven, eight years ago, I'm in Montreal with, uh, oh, maybe it's even longer than that, because I think it was Jaguar, Crawford, Marc-Andre Fleury, it might have been Joe Bernier was the fourth goalie for uh, for a goalie summit with CCM, and we're at the the Habs practice rink and, and somehow that conversation came up. And, and at that time, all that long ago, they just found it absurd, like absurd that the Canucks were still doing like dress and drives to UBC. And, you know, some of the stories and some of the things we used to see, um, less so this year in the past couple of years, uh, but especially, you know, like three, four years ago, like literally finishing practice, getting on a bus, driving back to Rogers Arena to do their cool down. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know an exercise physiologist that's going to suggest that's a good idea and certainly not what you expect at the highest professional level. So encouraged to see that. Um, not surprised to, you know, hear about upgrades. I, I mean, bravo to the ownership for uh, committing the resources to make these moves. Well, as soon as you brought in someone like Emily Castonguay mm-hmm. um, and her history as an on the agent side and knowing what's important to players, you... I think we're going to have to just not just sorry the um, if you can still hear me not just the uh, the practice facility mm-hmm. like we literally got booted out of the media room multiple times this year so that they could have meetings in there. Yeah. Like <laughs> Rogers arena, fold up chairs, meetings. You guys have seen what other teams have. They have movie theater type rooms to do their film work. Mm-hmm. And these guys are like piling chairs around <laughs> a big screen TV in the media room to, to have their meetings. Like that is not the expectation at the highest level of the sport anymore. And it's, you know, kudos to them for getting to this point, but I think it probably should have been arrived at a lot sooner um, that the players here expect more than they've had. Well, I, that, a big part of that is not only just, yeah, the players, uh, you know, expect more, but also as far as what the standards are to get the best out of everybody. And previously, clearly with, you know, Benning in charge, and especially when Lyndon wasn't there anymore, that type of vision was not there to say... Uh, implore the importance of this to ownership and get that through and them and them trusting and, and buying into that. And it's good to see Rutherford, you know, be able to exert that and get that out of this ownership group and then get that type of investment. Because as much as we sit here and talk about getting the best out of um, your players, a large part of having success is being able to get the best out of your staff as well, your scouting staff, right, your developmental staff, and, and giving them the resources and the tools to be able to do their job at the best at their best too. And that can also have a huge impact on player performance. Yeah. And you know, and going right down to Abbotsford and and the money they're evidently going to invest there. And so, um, you know, I mean, maybe there's a little part of me that's skeptical after taking this long to get to this stage of the practice facility. 
Um, it's a good message to hear. Now let's let's see it executed. Some of the stories I've heard out of Abbotsford to date, um, not maybe so much on the player side in terms of how they're treated, but the way the business is run, yeah, frankly, haven't been flattering. Um, and so, you know, let's see uh, where this goes and let's see, you know, them put their money where their mouth is and let's see them follow through. But everything I heard yesterday was encouraging at all levels. So uh, Rutherford was pretty candid about uh, the way the team played and obviously the, the stuff about Boudreaux. Uh, was was fascinating, but um, he mentioned structure quite a bit. Uh, what's your take on on Rutherford's comment of the Canucks needing to play with more structure? Well, I mean, it's not. I mean, surprised, and I guess um, liked the fact that he was so candid about it. Not sure how Bruce Boudreaux would have felt hearing it um, so publicly. Although I have to imagine that if they'd had their conversations. Uh, as both sides indicated in the days leading up to these press conferences, that it's not a surprise to him. I, I, I talked about this before. Um, as much as they improved under Bruce, it wasn't in the defensive end. Like, they did not get a lot better defensively. The numbers that got better defensively had a name, and it was Thatcher Demko. Like, they were heavily reliant on goaltending even after he arrived. Um, you know, and, and so whether that's the breakouts and the way they get out of their defensive zone, how much of that is systems, how much of that is structure, how much of that is forwards being in the right spot, and whether this group of young forwards, who, let's be honest, because of where the team was at, were given an awful lot Mm -hmm. of um, top-end minutes earlier in their careers. Uh, And, you know, frankly, there's a bunch of them that um, don't still – have the detail um, in their game defensively that I think is going to be required for this team to win come playoff time once they get back there. And so uh, I guess I'm not surprised. We talked about this before, like the numbers bored out. They were still one of the worst defensive teams in hockey, even after Bruce came, uh, you know, bottom, bottom eight for sure. And so that has to change. And then I guess the question becomes how much of it is personnel and how much of it, you know, is coaching and structure and how much of it is after all this time of some of the higher end players getting away without that structure, can you instill it? Can you force it into their games sort of almost retroactively, frankly, for some of them, um, because some of those habits just haven't been there. And you know, I, I don't know that I have the answer into as to how much of it is, is each one of those components. I mean, you know, we saw it this year, you know, like, like literally after Boudreaux took over, um, Brad Shaw during, I remember one of the early practices, like literally taking some of their, perhaps we shall call them less skilled puck movers and, and spent time in practice showing them and working on a high flip as Rance would call it punt and hunt. Um, just flip it out of the zone and let the forwards go get it. Like they literally spent practice time. Mm-hmm improving and working on a high flip out of the zone. Like I, I was waiting for you, Yurke Lume to come out of the stands and show them how to do it right. Right. Nobody was better at the high flip than Yurke. So um, not exactly the controlled breakout that Jim Rutherford was talking about yesterday. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious to see um, whether they can get there with this group. And when I say that it's not just the defensemen, it's the forwards being in the right spot predictably um, dependably and consistently so that they provide that outlet for the defenseman. 
Well, and you know, and the outlet to a lot of that, yes, a lot of that that is instruction. The defenseman being able to recognize that and making the right read. But how much of that also comes down to your forwards and them being able to make the right reads and be available? So as much as we sit here and talk about improving the defense, how much do they need to need, need to improve forwards that have good defensive awareness? Well, that's what I was just talking about. I, I'm not sure how much of that component is defensemen that are you know yeah. maybe don't have a, the right hockey IQ or don't have the skill set um, and how much of it is forwards not being in the right spot. I've always said to me the most impressive coaching I ever saw it out of Elaine Vigneault's time here, like the best, the best thing he did was get elite offensive players to buy in on the defensive end. And that's when they became, you know, a, a championship contending team. And I still think there's work to do here with a lot of their higher end younger players uh, in terms of that positioning, in terms of that reliability, in terms of that consistency of being in the right spot and providing those outlets. Uh, it's really easy to hamper on the back end and hammer on them. Uh, and frankly, there's issues back there, no question. But it's not, you know, just like goaltending never exists in a vacuum. Uh, I don't think those controlled breakouts that, that Jim Rutherford talked about yesterday exist in a vacuum either. It's not all on the guys in the back end. It is about everyone else being in the right spots, reliably, consistently, predictably, so that the defensemen know where those outlets are and trust that they'll be there when they need them. So the the number Rutherford uh, said to us was that Demko stole about fifty percent of the wins. Was it actually that much? <laughs> no, that's that's high. I mean, but again, like we've we've had this argument before about yeah. uh, what's a stolen win, and there's different ways. But no matter how you sort of grade it out statistically, um, you know he would that would be double the highest guy in the league. I it's a custom query at ClearSight. It's not something I can just tap a button on and get. It requires. Um, somebody to go into the back and dig it up for me, and I wasn't able to do that in time for our show today after getting your uh, the show notes, Dan. My apologies, but um, there's no way it was half. That would be like that would be I, I, like we'd be we'd be talking about the second coming of Dominic Hashik if, if that was the case. With all due respect, and then again, they may grade it differently. At the end of the day, I've said this all along, and so I'm not disagreeing with Jim Rutherford. They are too dependent on their goaltending. And the good news is they have a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, but we saw what happened. Uh, it's not just, you know, that, that that's a lot of burden to bear. It's that you wear him out physically because you have to keep playing him because you'll never have a backup. That's like, like if you need business caliber goaltending to win, chances of having a backup that can deliver it consistently, you know, that's why you force yourself to ride the number one guy as hard as they did. And again, <laughs> Not a coincidence, whether it's Demko or Soros, um, we're seeing those guys that played the most minutes not make it to the end of the season this year. Well, and part of it, too, I kind of wonder here is that you have Demko on such a great number for four more years. And if you are able to be a bit better defensively and you score a bit more, I can understand how you can see this in a couple of years be a really dangerous team once you get into the postseason. You have some elite level talent, you play a good structured game, and you have Demko in net. I mean, the template is kind of there, and I think the the timeline really is the next four years with that Demko contract, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you got to think so. Um, you know, probably towards the tail end of it. I don't know if it's in one or two, but certainly yeah. in year three or four of that contract, you better be making hay because at the current rate, um, you know, that's going to be a hell of a bargain the way he's progressed and the way he's played over the past couple of years. So, um, yeah, I would, uh, I would. 
I would think that I would hope that that's your window because um, things are probably going to get more expensive, not just for Thatcher, but sort of everyone around him. Um, you know, we saw what he was capable of in the bubble, even though it was just three games. And the other thing too, like I know, you know, like we haven't seen enough of it. Uh, and, and obviously Vancouver fans are all too aware of that in terms of getting an opportunity to play in the playoffs. But as much as a lot of people want to, you, you want to throw at the bubble because it was so different. Like there are a lot of other sort of young high end players that rose to the occasion there that weren't afraid of playoff hockey that engaged. Um, so like, like beyond Demko, like I think getting that talent into those situations a couple of times, you know, into the playoffs, maybe not next year, but in, in three of the next four, if it's two years from now and the next two after that, like there are, there are pieces here that as Rutherford said from his first press conference. And then again, the other day, um, the right move, the wrong two out and you're in trouble, bring the right two in and you're fine. Um, there's a lot of good pieces to build around. And I think, you know, if we remember back to that playoff bubble, those those pieces also didn't shy away uh, from the big moments and the intensity of the postseason. And so if you can get them back there, I think fans should be excited about what they might be able to deliver in that environment again. Kevin Woodley, our guest, uh, Canuck Central, did want to get a couple of things in on uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs ongoing. We saw our, our first uh, multi-overtime game last night. Uh, how do oh. goalies get through it? <laughs> Yeah, uh, painfully for the most part. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see what the final verdict is on Casey DeSmith, whether that was just a lower body injury or whether cramping. I don't know that we've heard anything definitive, and it's the playoffs, so nobody's going to say how much of that was just pure cramping and how much of that was, you know, just an injury. Um, to me, the best story, and we, we had J.S. Shiger, uh on, on the pod, on the InGoal radio podcast not all that long ago um, to talk about the five-overtime game against Dallas. And like he described it as just pure hell. Like that, he was already a guy who had consulted the Gatorade Institute <laughs> to help with some sweat issues. Uh, Dallas is hot and humid, obviously. Um, once they got to overtime, guys, they put in an IV for him, which is pretty standard stuff these days. You put it in an IV to sort of replenish the fluids. Uh, he had a problem absorbing fluids uh, when he drank. So, it was an automatic. Now, it's the two parts to the story. The first part was normally your best, the best person put in an IV. We all know this is a nurse. My mom was a nurse. She'll tell you she put in IVs better than anyone. Well, they only had the team doctor. And Jiggy tells us about how, like, this team doctor couldn't find a pain. He's dehydrated already. <laughs> it's Texas. Oh, man. His exact words, I was covered in blood. I was a bloody mess. So when they finally got it in there in the first overtime and he got his fluids in, He's like, we're leaving it in. We're leaving oh the God. line in, and <laughs> I am going to play with the line in because I can't afford this process and the time it takes. I need to be able to get back into the locker room, hook up to that IV and go. So he played five overtime periods with the IV line in. Now, I made the mistake when I tweeted about it last night. I said, imagine playing goal with a needle in your arm, and I was mistaken. The piece that actually stays in your arm is a small plastic piece, yeah. so it's not an actual hard needle. Um, I apologize. I didn't go to med school. I did go to school for eight years, and when I told my dad after graduation that a lot of people do, his first line was, yeah, they're called doctors. Unfortunately, I just ended up as a journalist. Um, but So I wasn't aware of that, so my apologies on Twitter. If I, you know, I, I over, overplayed it, but still, with it in his arm, he played five overtime periods and still... 
if you remember, it was Peter Sikora, 48 seconds into the fifth overtime, and Jiggy was so bad going into that fifth overtime. He said in the fourth overtime intermission, he went to he, his hands cramped so badly he couldn't put his gear back on, and he'd taken it off to cool down. And his jaw cramped to the point where he couldn't yell at the trainer to come help him put his gear on. And so as he managed to sort of talk a little bit, he turns to Brizgala, and he says, Briz, you better get ready. And I guess Briz, Briz had already pulled the Louis Domingue and wolfed down a whole pizza that intermission. So he's like, no way, I'm not going in. So not only was J.S. Shiger ecstatic to see Peter Sikora score on Marty Turco 48 seconds into overtime, but I'm pretty sure Ilya Brizgalov with his tummy full of pizza was pretty happy too. Man, that's funny. Kind of reminds me of, of Louis Domingue there. He said the, uh, the spicy pork and the broccoli, but apparently... Yeah, spicy hand- pork and broccoli. Yeah. Yeah, but apparently handled it just fine. Uh, you know, what, I did want to ask you about Mike Smith and a lot of our texters, including Shooter Tutor Tyler, is asking. And, and, you know, I like the way he posed the question. He said, how much do you handle the puck? I'm sure, like myself, there are other beer leaguers that can relate to what happened to Mike Smith. That's Shooter Tutor Tyler asking the question. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, can relate to it because none of us are as good at it. Like, my my team, I like to go handle the puck, too. My team doesn't like it when I do. Um, Listen, Mike Smith, way more good than harm for the Edmonton Oilers. They will tell you that. Uh, I know there are naysayers, but I've had conversations with the goalie coaches that he's worked with, with other organizations. Uh, When he was with Calgary, the goalie coach shared some of the metrics on just how much uh, hits he reduced for defensemen, the positive impact on their breakout. Like, so he's a net positive. But there are moments where he just tries to do too much, and I think he admitted that the other night. You just, you know, that's no different than a defenseman throwing a pizza up the middle trying to force something. You can't do that. And what changes in the playoffs, I think teams pay so much more attention to the pre-scout on a goaltender, and in Mike Smith's case, that's going to include him playing the puck. And not just, hey, let's put in soft dumps, let's, you know, cross-ice dumps, let's put it into the corner, in the, you know, in the trap, outside of the trap where he can't go play it, let's not let him touch it. Um, it's not just that. It's, there will be a keen recognition. The worst thing if you're a puck-handling goalie, and even for me who's a horse-crap puck-handling goalie, is when you do get out there and your defenseman comes straight to you, right? Like, because... There's nowhere to pass it. You're like, peel off to the corner so I can look good and pass it to you. Don't come right at me. But in Smith's case, at this point in the season, like the defensemen go to their spots. Nobody goes back to him. And you know damn well the Kings of Priest got to where those spots are. And so they're trying to seal off the other locations. And if he is going to handle it, make them think twice about just going to his regular outlets because they might be covered. And you could see, like, there was an outlet there. I think it was Duncan Keith on the left side that he could have hit. But there was a there was a fork checker coming to Keith. And so he hesitated. He heard a call. He looked up. He thought he could get it up there. And he screwed it up. He tried to get too much out of it. So, um, you know, I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's a mistake. And it's a mistake you can't have. Like, like the, the last time the Oilers in the playoffs, when, or when they lost in the bubble to Chicago, there was one of those in his first game as well. Just an egregious tried to do too much turnover that ends up in the back of the net. And they're momentum killers. And it's going to be really fascinating to see how he bounces back tonight. Because this is a guy who was one of the players of the month in April. Like, he was on a heater. He was rolling. 
And beyond the puck handling mistake, I, I didn't think he looked all that great in that game. So he hasn't had a lot of playoff success of late. There's going to be a lot of pressure there tonight. And I got to think, as crazy as it sounds for as well as he played for the last five, six weeks of the season, maybe even a short leash, especially if he continues to make mental mistakes, uh, the kind of mental mistakes that would leave a defenseman on the bench, like throwing a pizza up the middle the way he did. Just You can't have it. You've got to stay within yourself. Um, the playoffs are all about not, not making the other team's life easy and you can't give away goals the way he did. Uh, we're pretty much out of time, but I do want to get your take on uh, on Minnesota sticking with uh, Marc-Andre Fleury. Uh, good move or bad move from Dean Evison? I mean, I would have normally said it was a bad move to start him against any other team. Um, Camp Talbot's, what, 13-0-3 since Flower arrived? The only part of this that is defensible? Because at the beginning... Marc-Andre Fleury was excellent, but his last three, four starts, he didn't look great. He looked like he was struggling. You know, the only part that makes this understandable and defensible, uh, beyond the fact it wasn't all on Marc-Andre Fleury the other night, but Cam Talbot's numbers against the St. Louis Blues this season are, like, like horrific. Like, they're like Yaroslav Halak against the, against the New York Islanders type numbers. Like, he's, he's got, like, an 840 or an 850 this season against the Blues. And so, given how much he struggled against this team in particular, it's somewhat understandable. But, man, if it goes this way again, I'm real curious to see what decisions they make because they spent a lot of money or invested a lot of capital in bringing in Marc-Andre Fleury. So, I understand that mentality. Uh, but you hang another four spot on him, and uh, it's going to make for a fascinating decision. And I know we're out of time, but guys, can we also appreciate just how good Billy Huso is? Yeah. I don't know how many times I've said on this program, he is having the season that everyone thinks Igor Shesterkin is behind a truly horrendous defensive team. And he was full value again the other night. So much for playoff pressure and never done it before in the postseason. Nothing like hanging a shuddy in your first chance. All right. Uh, we're out of time, but yes or no, essentially. Was it goalie interference or not? Rangers, Penguins. Goalie interference every time, Seth. Answer for me. <laughs> He's got the goalie union card. You know the uh, answer. Uh, Woodley, you're the best, man. Really appreciate this as always. Yeah, thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me. Uh, there is uh, Kevin Woodley, uh, Ingold Magazine and NHL.com. You are listening to Canucks Central.